Genesis chapter 42, and I said we're going to cover chapter 42 through 45. That's a lot of reading. We're not going to read all of it. I'm going to refer to certain passages there because the, the study covers uh, much of what's in chapter 42 and 45. And I'm going to read from some of the passages, but really basically refer to the scripture references uh, on the topics that... Uh, and the, the, the scenes that we're going to be looking at tonight. The next episode in our story of Joseph now is going to be his reunion with his brothers. And it's the first time that Joseph has, that they have seen each other in over 20 years. Let's begin by reading chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. And it says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over all the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Like I said, the last time they'd seen each other was when his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And by the time of this reunion, things, things had changed a lot between them. Joseph was not a slave anymore. He was now a high government official in the Egyptian government. His brothers were older, not arrogant or hateful or powerful anymore. The reuniting of Joseph and his brothers happened when Joseph's brothers, as we just read, came to Egypt to buy food during the early stages of this seven years of famine. And because Joseph was in charge of giving out the food, it was a sure thing that he would come in contact with his brothers. But it was totally unexpected by Joseph's brothers because, you see, they thought he was dead. They left him for dead. But for Joseph, it wasn't that unexpected when he saw his brothers because he expected to see them and he made plans for the time that he did. Now, the way Joseph handled this situation, when he met his brothers, it may seem kind of strange to you. It may be confusing. So, you may ask, why did Joseph, why didn't he just tell his brothers who he was when they first got to Egypt? Why did he treat his, old, his older brothers so strangely the first time that they came to Egypt? And why did he treat Benjamin so uh, strangely when they came on the second trip? Was he being spiteful for what his brothers did to him? Was the way Joseph was behaving uncalled for? Well, we're going to see why he behaved the way he did with his brothers as we go along here. But Joseph's ability to hide his identity for quite a while during the reunion shows his extraordinary patience. Now, the natural thing to do would be to let them know right off the bat who he was the minute he saw them. But he waited until the second time that they visited before he told them he was their brother. And it would really be hard under normal circumstances to wait that long and to let his brothers go back to Canaan after the first visit. 
But Joseph's patience was a very necessary and difficult thing to do. You see, it was necessary because timing, again, timing is everything. Timing in providing a person with a lot of possessions and position is very important. Are they ready to receive possessions? Are they ready to receive a, a, a position? You see, you can ruin people with possessions and position before they have the character for the responsibility. And it was difficult because it took a lot of self-control of the emotions of Joseph at a time when emotions were running high. Joseph loved his brothers very much, even though they had been very cruel to him. But Joseph wasn't like those who can't forget when they're offended or when they're mistreated, even though they say they do. Joseph Parker said, There are some men who cannot get over the very slightest offense. You never meet them, but they give you to understand that they have been insulted, offended, dishonored. How little, how unutterable paltry such men appear in the presence of a man who, after 20 years of exile, solitude, evil treatment of all kinds, keeps his heart through it all and has not allowed himself to become soured. Because Joseph loved his brothers so much, he wanted to give to them generously the things that they needed. This is always a characteristic of love. Love always wants to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. Joseph not only had a lot of affection to give, he also had the ability to give. He had the power to give generously because of his high position in the Egyptian government. Joseph was able to give his brothers more than enough to eat in the midst of this terrible famine. But before he blessed them with possessions and position, he had to make sure it was the right time to do so. So what did he do? He tested them. He had to test them to see if it was the right time, to see if their hearts were right. So in order to do this effectively, he has to keep his identity hidden from them. Joseph could not bless bad men. And the last time Joseph was around them, he knew they weren't good men. But it's been a long time now, 20 years. They could have changed since he last saw them. So in order to find out the true condition of their, his brother's heart, to see if it was the right time to bless them, he has to remain undercover. He can't let them know who, it, who he is at the moment. So he's not being cruel to his brothers. He's not being spiteful. He's not being cold by not telling them who he is right away. Instead, he's being wise, he's being kind and considerate of everybody that's involved. In Genesis 42, verse 24, it says, you know, after he met them, it says, he turned himself away from them and he wept. This shows that Joseph wasn't bitter toward them. It showed that he had feelings for them. And after seeing his older brothers, all he could think about was seeing his father and his younger brother, Benjamin, who didn't make it on this trip. It would have been so easy for Joseph's emotions to take over in this situation. And a lot of times that's, you know, our emotions are so strong. They're so powerful that a lot of times we allow our emotions to dictate what we do. It wasn't easy for Joseph to not tell his brothers who he was. 
Proverbs 25, 28 says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. A person who has no rule over his own spirit, that means they have no self-control. Solomon compares that person who cannot control his emotions like a city broken down without walls. A city, in biblical times, that didn't have walls was vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. The desert thieves would go looking for towns that didn't have walls. Why? They were easy to invade. They were easy to do whatever they wanted with them. And Satan knows that. When a person has no control over the emotions, the enemy knows what buttons to push. And they lose control. Several things that took place in the presence of his older brothers show what a great self-control, what great self-control Joseph had in not letting them know who he was. The first words out of Joseph was this in chapter 42, verse 9. The first thing he says to them is, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you guys are spies. You come to see where our weaknesses are. Hadn't seen him in 20 years. This is what he says. Again, it would sound and look like he's being cruel. He's being vengeful. After, he's accused, after he accuses the brothers of being spies, then chapter 42, verse 17 says that he puts them in prison. Okay? Chapter 42, verse 16 said that he would test them. He said they would be tested. The reason for it is to see if what they said was true by sending one of them to bring back Benjamin while the other stayed in prison until they returned to Egypt with Benjamin. So Joseph chose Simeon of the brothers who were there who stayed behind to be a hostage, according to chapter 42, verse 24, which was probably an intentional move by Joseph because of how Simeon dealt with Joseph when he was in Dothan years earlier. Remember when his dad, Jacob, told Joseph, go to Dothan and find out what your brothers are doing? Because not long after his brothers were let out of prison, they confessed among themselves here in chapter 42, verse 21. They said, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. But the brothers didn't know that, that Joseph understood what they were saying because chapter 42, verse 23 here says that he was speaking to them, Joseph was speaking to them through an interpreter. But Joseph did hear what they said and he did understand what was said. Before the test was over, and Joseph had to find a place where he could go cry because he didn't want them to see him cry. Chapter 42, verse 23. His emotions were running high, and he, he had to leave. He had to go somewhere where they couldn't see him and cry. What a blessing for Joseph to know his brother's attitude had changed significantly since the last time he saw them 20 years earlier. Leopold says, Joseph's dealings with his brothers were analogous to those of God when he deals with sinners who are to be led to repentance. In the brother's situation, it's basically what goes around comes around. What happened to them is kind of a mirror image of what they did to Joseph. You reap what you sow. And God uses the example of you reap what you sow. He used it with David. Remember when God sent Nathan to David to tell him that simple parable that reflected David's sin with Bathsheba? When he accused you know, a, a, a person of, of stealing this man's sheep who he loved so much, and, and that's all he had, and he loved it, and, 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 and Nathan said, David, you're that man. Because David said, oh, that man needs to be done away with. He said, David, that's a picture of you. That's what you did to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. 
And the parable worked, and David repented. God still uses that, that, that type of, of, of method of conviction today. He, you know, the reflection of your sin, you know, of another sin in your life. It's like James said in James 1, 23 through 25. It is like, you know, it's like looking into the mirror when you read the word of God. It's like looking into a mirror. It's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself. The word of God tells you who you are and what you are. And in some passages of the scripture that we read, we see our bad behavior described perfectly. Other times, it's the reflection of circumstances. The evil that we've done to others returns to us in the same form. The mirror that James uses in chapter 1, it's an excellent teacher. And it often brings quick and ready conviction and repentance when we've tried other things that haven't worked. Even the world recognizes that you reap what you sow in order to bring conviction and confession. When the brothers came to Egypt the second time, they had Benjamin with them. This time, Joseph treated them differently than the first time. Instead of being harsh with them, he was very kind to them. And chapter 43, verse 23 says that, that, that Joseph let Simeon go. He let him out of prison and invited them all to eat with him in chapter 43 verse 16 now things were looking up for the brothers and it says in chapter 43 verse 34 they had a good time at the meal together but in all of this joseph was giving them another test this would show the truth about the brothers repentance you see, the first test had showed that the brothers' attitude about their evil that they committed against Joseph had really changed. But their confession of remorse about what they did, remember, they made that confession that, oh, we are truly guilty for what we've done. That was, they, they made that confession under, under stress of the tense circumstances of being in front of this, the, the, this leader of Egypt, you know, in the first test. So Joseph needed to test his brothers again to check out how much they truly repented. Because a lot of people show remorse for their past sins, but only in hard times, only when they're caught. But when things get better, they usually go back to their old ways. So at the next test, Joseph started by giving Benjamin, it says in chapter 43, verse 34, five times more food than he gave the other brothers at the meal. You see, Joseph did this because he wanted to see how the other brothers would react to the son who is now the favorite of the father. Before, remember, it was Joseph, and they were really envious of Joseph. They now think Joseph is dead. Now, Benjamin is the favorite of the other brothers, so Joseph gives that particular brother five times more food to eat than the other brothers. Remember in the past, like I said, they, they favored uh, the son Joseph. And when they got the chance, they sent Joseph to Egypt into slavery. Now, would they do the same thing to Benjamin that they did to Joseph if they had the chance? Or had they truly repented of that kind of behavior? So to continue testing them, Joseph later on intentionally had his Joseph's silver cup put in Benjamin's sack of grain in chapter 44, verse 2. After the brothers had gone a short distance towards home, Joseph sent his steward to catch up to the brothers and arrest the one who had the cup in his bag. 
We see that in chapter 44, verse 4 through 15. Now, the punishment for the guilty, whoever, that, you know, whoever was the one that would be guilty, which in this case you know, was Benjamin, would be, uh, would be slavery in Egypt. The way the brothers would react to this would clearly show the character of their repentance. You see, if they were still evil, they wouldn't really care about what happened to Benjamin. They wouldn't put up much of a stink. Oh, that's daddy's favorite, you know, and they're mad and envious like they were with Joseph. They wouldn't care what happened when he was arrested and sentenced. Their envious hearts would be secretly glad inside, thinking, oh, this is, this is, this is good. Vengeful, lack of sympathy. And they'd let Benjamin be taken into slavery in Egypt, just like they let Joseph be a slave in Egypt. So how did they react to this test? They had really changed. They weren't controlled by their envy anymore. And this was quickly seen when Benjamin was arrested. Because when Benjamin was, was arrested, his brothers, it says in chapter 44, 13 through 14, it says they tore their clothes and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and he was still there, notice, and they fell before him on the ground. Now, let's read uh, uh, chapter 44, verses 18 through 23. Chapter 44, 18 through 23. Then Judah came near to him and said, speaking to Joseph, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, talking about Joseph, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you, then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for he should leave his father, or if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So in, verses, in chapter 44, verses 13 through 14, Judah is pleading all right, with Joseph. All right, and, and in these verses, I'm sorry, in verses 18 through 23, he's pleading for Joseph for what had happened. He's pleading to Joseph. Okay, And, and it reveals some very important changes in, his brother's, in, in the brother's thinking. All right, he revealed that the brothers no longer envied the favorite son, but would do whatever they had to do to help him. They cared about him. Not only that, he revealed, it revealed that the brothers were so now very concerned about the well-being of their father, something they didn't care much about before when they sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph must have really been blown away touched when Judah said no in this regard in chapter 44 verses 30 through 31 Judah said now therefore when I come to your servant my father and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die so your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant our father with sorrow to the grave Judah finished his pleas to Joseph by offering himself as a slave in Benjamin's place in chapter 44, verse 33. What a great change this shows in, jo- in Judah. Earlier, it was Judah who, who led the way 
in selling Joseph back in chapter 37. But now Judah is, is leading the way in saving Benjamin. So the transformation in Judah, the change in Judah and his brothers, it was very great. And it was very obvious that there had been a change in the brothers. And Joseph was greatly moved by this. And he was thrilled by everything that he was seeing. And now he could let his brothers know who he really was. And soon he would be able to see his dearly loved father. So the test that Joseph put them through <clears throat> had skillfully searched the hearts of his brothers and had revealed his brother's true heart condition. And Joseph liked what he saw. Now in all of this, we can see the gospel represented in this test, in both Judah's plea and Benjamin's dilemma. Judah's plea, pleading for Benjamin is a picture of the Savior who provides salvation. And Benjamin's dilemma, where he needs to be delivered from all this, is the picture of the sinner who needs salvation. Joseph's pleas, I'm sorry, Judah's pleas before Joseph is a picture of Christ in some obvious ways. Judah, like Jesus, was a great intercessor. We see Judah intercessing for his son, Benjamin. Judah, like Jesus, was a great intercessor and was provided, this intercession was provided before the need arose. He offered himself, Judah offered himself as a substitute for the condemned in chapter 44, verse 33. Judah provided life for the one doomed to die, as Jesus did, and proved, uh, provided liberty for the one sentenced to slavery, which Jesus did. So again, we see the very characteristics of Jesus in, in, our, in our study here. So it's no wonder that it was said later of Judah, as it will be said of Jesus, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. In chapter 49, verse 8. Then Benjamin's dilemma pictures the sinner in some significant ways. First of all, in Benjamin, we see God's love for sinners. As his father, or, or Judah, was, was again a plea for Benjamin. Benjamin was greatly loved by Jacob and Joseph. God so loved sinners as well. Sinners don't go to hell because God doesn't love them, but because they don't love God. We can never blame God for going to hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So God provided a way. God so loved the world. So again, it's because men don't love him that they perish. The second thing that we see in Benjamin, we see the guilt in sinners. Benjamin's guilt is, again, the cup that was found in his sack. Now, Benjamin's guilt, it was the cause, it was the deed of another, uh, of another person. Joseph. You see, the sinner's guilt originated with the deed of another, Adam. Our sin originated from the deed, something that somebody else did. And that was Adam when he gave in to, to Satan in the garden. Also, this guilt was concealed to many. Now, many sinners today, on the outside, they look like good people. 
But you see, God knows what's in their heart like, 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 like Joseph knew what was in the sack of Benjamin. And the Holy Spirit was like the steward, or the steward was like the Holy Spirit that Joseph sent out to find, again, to bring uh, Benjamin, to make him aware of that cup that was in his sack, like the Holy Spirit makes us aware of the sin in our life. And then third, in Benjamin, we see some dangers of sinners. And one danger is slavery. As Benjamin was sentenced to slavery for that cup being found in his, in his, in his sack, or, or would have been, that would have been what would have happened to, to, in any other circumstance. Sin also enslaves sinners to all kinds of things. Benjamin would have been enslaved because of his guilt unless mercy had prevailed. You see, we see this today in many enslavements of sin, people with drug addictions or alcohol addictions or other sinful enslaving habits. Another danger we see in Benjamin is separation. He was separated from his father. Benjamin was about to be separated from friends and family. That's what sin does. Sin always, it's always wrecking families. Sin is always wrecking friendships. Isaiah said in chapter 59, verse 2, Your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Sin separates. Another danger with sin is sorrow. Much remorse came as a result of that cup found in Benjamin's sack, and we saw Judah pleading, pleading for Benjamin. Much sorrow comes to man because of sin in his life. And all man's sorrows can be traced back to sin. All because of sin. The only solution is the intercession of Jesus Christ, whom Judah foreshadows in his intercessory work for Joseph. The cup that was placed in Benjamin's sack as a part of the test is significant. Because you see, Joseph could have put anything, he could have had anything else put in that sack. But he used the cup. And he used it for a good reason. According to chapter 44, verse 5, the cup was used to divine. In other words, it was used to find out information otherwise not attainable by normal means. Now, Heathen people used it, the cup, superstitiously, much like fortune tellers would look into their crystal balls. But Joseph, of course, wouldn't use it for that kind of, uh, of, uh, of finding out knowledge. All right, he used it, but, but he, he used it for, to get divine knowledge from it. He used it to find, if the, find out if the brothers were truly changed. And when the brothers came to him with arrested, uh, when Benjamin was arrested, Joseph said in chapter 44, 15, did you know or did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? He was saying a lot in that verse. He, was, he, he wouldn't divine like the heathen does in a superstitious way, but he would divine through his clever plan of revealing the brothers. The cup was symbolic of what he was doing. And it should also be pointed out that Joseph was given supernatural ability from God in the past to divine such things as the famine. 
So, jo- so Joseph could definitely divine, but not in the ways that the heathen did it. So this exp- explanation is given to help clarify you know, any questions about Joseph stooping to heathen ways in the use of the cup. This test, and also the first test that Joseph gave his brothers, are like some of the trials that God allows to come into our own life, to come into the children, his own children. God has gracious purposes for sending his trials. Now, we may not see those purposes at the time that they come, and it's hard to see them because we're really not looking for them. What we're seeing is the trial. Many times we're focused on the trial, and we can't see anything because of the circumstances. That's what we're looking at. So naturally, we don't see the purposes uh, when those trials come. But those purposes are present anyway. They're there. And in the trials Joseph brought upon his brothers, we can also see the great purposes in the trials that God sends us. God does not send trials, or God does not allow trials in our life just randomly. It doesn't, it's not because God just wants to see us fold or fall down or, or be broken. One of the purposes for trials is to prove our testimony. Are we who we say we are? Is God to us all that we say he is? Is God our strength? Is God our sufficiency? Is he our all in all? Is he everything that we need when we need him? Because trials is what proves what we say. It's when we're going through the difficult times in our lives that proves what we say about God. It's easy to talk about God and how wonderful he is and how powerful he is and how faithful he is and how he answers prayer and all of those things that we say. It's easy to say that when when life is good, when everything is running smooth. It's through the difficult times. That proves our testimony. That proves our witness. And Joseph tested his brothers to prove their testimony. Because if you remember, in chapter 42, verse 11, they said, we are honest men. Again, it's easy to say those kinds of things about ourselves when things are going well. But the tests that Joseph put them through were needed to convince those around them that this was true, that they were honest men. So God sends trials to us to prove our testimony and to make our witness more effective. I mean, I think there's no greater witness than watching somebody go through a trial that is, you know, it's beyond, you know, uh, understanding. And many of God's people have done that. And with smiles on their faces and with hope in their hearts. And people say, how, how, can, you, how can you be so calm? How can you be, have such peace when you're going through something like this? It's my Jesus. It's my Lord. He's my rock. He's the one that I'm standing on. And that rock is stable. It doesn't move. It doesn't shake. It doesn't tremble. I'm immovable. I'm steadfast because of my Lord. Sometimes it's only trials that will often convince those around us that our profession of faith is for real. That we are really committed to God. 
And, and that's what the world needs to see. They've seen a lot of shallowness. They've seen a lot of superficial words that come out of our mouths and, and, and talking about God and, and the Bible and how we stand upon it and trust it. And, and then, again, when, when life caves in on us, it gets tough, we, we blow our witness. And then they say, see, that, that, that's, that's a Christian. That's another Christian. And, you know, they, and, and they seem to, they, they thrive on that because you see, they're looking for a reason why not to go to church. They're looking for a reason why not to trust in God. Because, oh, I knew a Christian one time. How many times have you heard that? I knew a Christian one time. And then they go and tell you why they don't believe in Christ anymore. Again, uh, trials will often convince the people around us whether we are truly, if our faith is real or not, whether we're not really committed to God. Trials are also to encourage fellowship. The brothers were out of fellowship with Joseph. Why? Because of their sin against him. But the test that Joseph put them through restored that fellowship. God also uses trials many times to bring the sinful person back to fellowship with himself. Trials are to show God's grace. And during Joseph's test, he gave his brothers several signs of his mercy. Joseph gave them back their money in chapter 42, verse 25, when he, you know, they paid for their, 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 their food. He gave the money back. He put it back in their sack in chapter 42, verse 25 and 44, verse 1. Joseph gave them numerous amounts of grain, chapter 44, 1. He gave them provisions for their way home, chapter 42, verse 25. In trials, God does the same thing for us. And even though in trials it seems like God is down on us, and, and we start to think, well, I must have done something wrong, or Satan comes and says, God doesn't love you, or you can't trust his word, and you can't trust his promises, and all of those things are thrown at us when we go through trials. And Satan beats us up. God's down on us. Signs of mercy and grace will be present even though we're going through difficult times. And we need to recognize them. We need to be able to see them, pick them up, because those things, those, those signs of his mercy and his grace, they will encourage us. And they will enable us to make it through the trial victoriously. And then last, trials produce prosperity. Joseph tests, Joseph's tests, like God's trials, eventually brought prosperity to his brothers. It will bring prosperity to those who are trusted. Joseph's brothers experienced going from the land of poverty to the land of plenty. And it's the same with our trials. They enrich us. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So now, after all of this testing that Joseph did with his brother, now that all of this testing is done, and Joseph is satisfied with what he's seen, he's satisfied with the results of the test, he feels like that he can now let his brothers know who he really is. And look at chapter 45, verse 3. 
It says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am Joseph. I mean, think of it. After 20 years, and they think Joseph is dead. He says, I am Joseph. Can you imagine their reaction when they heard those words? When Joseph identified himself, the Bible says, there in verse 3, again, but his brothers could not answer him because they were dismayed in his presence. I guess so. The word dismayed there in verse 3 means to tremble inwardly. It means to palpitate. They were trembling and their heart was probably pounding. Here they were, now totally in their brother's power, who behaved at first, which seemed harshly with them, and he behaved that way most of the time. In reality, he was testing them. He was testing if they, if they had any guilt before, it would be, I mean, if they had any guilt before, when they said, oh, you know, we're just so guilty. You know, we're just, you know, now that guilt would be overwhelming. Remembering what they had done to Joseph. And now, with Joseph's absolute power to do anything he wanted to them, they probably thought, it would have been my first thought, we're done for. It's over. And they're probably thinking that justice and revenge would probably be the first thing on Joseph's mind. He's going to get it. He's going to get he's going to get us for that, for what we did. And it says they were speechless. They didn't know what to say. They were dismayed. And, and it's not surprising. Standing there in his presence, thinking for the last 20 years that he was dead. Now, Joseph was ex Joseph was expecting a lot of joy and happiness at this reunion with his father and his family. But the brothers were expecting just the opposite. Two different emotions on, on, on each side. The, the brothers were expecting nothing but sorrow and suffering of the worst kind until Joseph showed them his love for them. He showed them his love to them. The brothers' traumatic experience is kind of a preview of, what a, pic of a picture of what Christ-rejecting sinners are going to experience when they stand before uh, the glorified Christ in judgment, trembling and in dismay when they stand before Christ. Joseph's brothers' case here, in, his ca in their case, they're going to be accepted by Joseph. And their trauma and, and their terror is going to be relieved. But that's not going to be the case for those who reject Jesus Christ because their terror and their trauma is going to last for eternity. There, there were a lot of victories that Joseph experienced for living a righteous life. It does pay to live a righteous life. It's difficult, but it does pay. And someday the righteousness that righteousness that we live will be finalized in a glorified position in heaven. So for the believer, may they be encouraged because it seems like the Josephs of the world, those who live for righteousness' sake, are always being put down. 
always being ridiculed, dishonored by the world. While evil, like his older brothers, it gets away with all kinds of, of ruthlessness, cruelty. The Josephs of the world seem to be usually despised, slandered, terribly misrepresented, even imprisoned. Truth seems to always be put down by men, while lies are held up high and honored. So the discouraged believer wants to cry out, like the prophet Habakkuk, who said in Habakkuk 1.4, the law has, and this is so fitting for the moment, the law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. How timely is that? Law has become paralyzed. There's no justice in the courts. And we know the wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. Evil is considered good and good evil today. But one day, all the Josephs of the world will be lifted up on high and truth will be honored. And from that high exalted position, we will hear the voice saying, I am Joseph, or I am the Lord. And then righteousness will have victory over evil. Evil will bow down to Joseph. Every knee shall bow, Jesus, it says to Jesus. Every evil will bow down to Joseph. Evil will be in terror. Evil will lose its power when righteousness is exalted. So righteousness has a great future. So we as believers, man, we, we can't forget that. We can't lose sight of that. Even though today, what's going on today may do all it can to destroy you, to destroy your confidence, your faith, to discourage you, but understand, right will win over. Right will prevail over wrong. And then after the scriptures tell us the brothers were terrified at, at, after Joseph revealed himself to them, it then tells us about Joseph's great, uh, gracious pleadings with his brothers. In chapter 45, verse 4, he says to them, Please come near to me. Please come near to me. And then it says, Joseph spoke very kindly to them as he tried to calm their troubled hearts. Joseph wanted to fill his brother's lives with the grace of forgiveness instead of being worried, instead of them being worried about retaliation. This was totally, this was what, this is what they totally unexpected to hear. What they didn't expect to hear as, as far as they were concerned. What came out of the mouth of Joseph was totally unexpected by the brothers. And, and Joseph could have said so many other things. And the brothers knew that they deserved it. They knew that they didn't, that they didn't deserve Joseph's grace. They had been so cruel to him in the way they treated Joseph. And he could have locked them up for the rest of their lives. And if he had done that, if he had locked them up for the rest of their lives, they would have had no legitimate complaint. There was nothing that they could have said that would have justified what they, what they did. But grace won out when Joseph revealed himself to them. Think about this. 
Chapter 45, verses 14 and 15 says this. Weeping with joy, Joseph embraced Benjamin, and Benjamin did the same. And then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. I mean, what a wonderful attitude this shows of Jesus Christ to every repenting sinner who bows before him when they earnestly, earnestly confess their sin. That's what's waiting for them. Then the righteous life experiences the perspective of our trials. Joseph told his brothers in chapter 45, verse 5, Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God has a plan. What a, what a wonderful perspective of our tough trials in life. Earlier in our studies of Joseph's trials, we mentioned his good attitudes in times of trials, which helped him to get victory in the trial. Remember in Potiphar's house, his attitude when he was in the going through the trial of slavery, it, he was faithful to his duty. He didn't complain about what he was doing. He wasn't, you know, throwing things around, but he was, he was faithful to his duty. And this brought relief. This brought, you know, just relief to his pain and to his trial. In prison, his attitude was to help others, remember, in their affliction, the butler and the baker. And this brought deliverance from his trial. And then here, Joseph reveals another attitude that sees God as the one who is behind all trials. That's what needs to sink in, that we see God behind all of our trials, whatever we go through. Joseph saw God behind his move to Egypt. He saw God's providence more than the devil's persecution in his trials. And so many times, we give the devil so much credit. Oh, the devil did this, and the devil did that. And devil, the devil only does what God allows him to do. That's it. My God is behind everything that happens to me <clears throat> and for a purpose this kind of perspective that is seeing God behind every trial brings victory in our trials because it stops the bitterness in our heart because many times in our trials we get bitter we get angry at God but this perspective that God is behind every trial brings victory in our trials because it stops the bitterness, which is the great destroyer of those who are tested. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He says, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. We need to quit looking at the circumstances and look at God. In closing... Joseph's strange behavior with the reunion of, his, reunion of his brother should convince, convince us that his behavior was of the highest quality because, you see, he had a righteous purpose behind it. He wasn't being mean. He wasn't being vengeful. He had a purpose behind it. It wasn't behavior that was mean or spiteful or unfair. There was wisdom in what he did. There was holiness in what he did, even though it seemed strange and odd in the way he behaved. 
And both wisdom and goodness supported every one of his plans and everything that he did. And the more we read about Joseph in the Bible, the more we're blown away by the character of Joseph and the wisdom of Joseph. And Pharaoh spoke more, spoke more truth than he realized when he said this about Joseph in Genesis 41, 39. There is no one as discerning and wise as you. All because of his love and his faith and his close relationship that he had with God with God. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word, Lord. Father, teach us. And I believe it's not that you haven't taught us. But God, may we hold dear to our hearts that truth that, Lord, you are behind everything that takes place in our life, God. Everything is filtered through your hands, God. Nothing slips by you. Nothing gets by you. You don't forget about us, God. We're so close to your very heart, God. You're concerned about our very welfare, Lord. And so, Lord, help us to remember that. So that we don't become bitter, discouraged, hopeless knowing that you chose us, God, knowing all things about us, Lord. You chose us in spite of our faults and our shortcomings, God, because you saw in us someone that you could use. You give us all that we need to serve you, Lord. All you're looking for is availability. Someone to say, here I am, Lord. I don't know much. I can't do much. But I'm willing to be used in your hands, God. Use me however you choose. For your glory. And for my good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.